Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. How you doing, everyone? I'm Ross Salzberg, and I want you all to listen up and get a load of this. This man walked across America to raise money and awareness for first responders. Former Giants great George Martin is with me to talk about that, the anthem, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So like I said, listen up, because you're really going to want to get a load of this. He needs no further introduction. He is just a, he was a tremendous football player, but as great a football player as he was, he's an even better person. I can say that from firsthand experience. I'm talking about big number 75, Mr. George Martin. George, thanks for joining me today. Russ, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, there's a ton of things you and I can talk about and we will talk about, but let's get to, if you will, the big elephant in the room. Uh, the the anthem players standing or not standing or what protest or is it right or is it wrong? And I believe you and I are pretty much on the same side with this. I believe players have a right to protest, but I believe the way they went about it and what it's grown into as uh, it was the wrong way. And now it's taken on a life of its own. First of all, Russ, uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to discuss it because it's something that's uh, very important to me and uh, I think near and dear to a lot of uh, athletes, both current and former. Um, first of all, I, I'd have to address the narrative because I think that the narrative overall has been successfully hijacked, and that's a shame. That's a travesty in and of itself. The narrative was never about the national anthem, patriotism, or disrespecting the military. It was not. It was about the injustice that we as African Americans saw uh, happening disproportionate to us by law enforcement, some aspects of law enforcement, not all law enforcement. That was the initial impetus of this um this uh, discussion. And um, unfortunately, as I said, it's, it's come down to a narrative where it's disrespecting uh, the American flag. And that, to me, is a travesty because that's not the, the issue at hand. That's where I, you know, have a problem with because and, and you and I have discussed this off the air. Full disclosure, folks, I am friends with George Martin, like to say good friends. And George, the one thing that that bothers me and i hold the players association responsible for it as well the players have never come out as a group to sit down like on mass 
in in with the press conference in front of everybody so the nation can the nation can see them and hear them say listen just what you just said, George. This is what it's been about. It's been about this, that, and the other thing. It's never been about disrespecting veterans. It's never been about disrespecting the military. They've never done that. And and that's one of the reasons, as you say, why, why the narrative has been hijacked. I, I could not agree with you more. You're absolutely right. And I think that there should be a single voice uh, to explain the position of the players. Unfortunately, it, it sort of morphed out of, out of thin air, and it was, uh, as I said, conveniently taken over. Uh, I think also that there's fault on both sides. I think had the league, vis-a-vis Roger Goodell, vis-a-vis the NFL uh, Players Association, when this first took place, had sat down and had a, a, a summit, if you will, to talk about these issues, to get them out on the table so that a comprehensive collective uh, approach or at least address that situation had taken place, we would have had a totally different scenario altogether as well. Oh, let me ask you this, though. There have been discussions with some African-American players. Uh, Malcolm Jenkins was of, of the Eagles, one of the leaders of that group. And, um, in fact, to the point of which I believe something like $89, $90 million has been ear- earmarked by the NFL towards some African-American uh, charities, or with you, if you will. Uh, but you, you use the term summit. We're about the same age. I don't know if you remember the Alley Summit in 1967. You know, that was when Muhammad Ali was not going into the service. And you had a lot of that was not popular, Mm -hmm. but you had a lot of people, big names in sports. There was Ali. There was Jim Brown, still arguably considered the greatest football player of all time. Yes. There, There was... Before he was Kareem, there was Lou Alcindor, yep. there was uh, a guy by the name of Bill Russell. I mean, it was yes. a, about 12 guys, a who's who uh, of athletes. And whether you like what they said or not, they were front and center and they explain themselves. Absolutely. And I think therein lies the difference. And you pointed it out so eloquently. Uh, there was a group of guys that had, they were speaking with a single voice. Uh, in this case, that has not happened. But if you're also looking at that historical perspective, it was met with a lot of uh, disagreement and a lot of people uh, really voiced their their anger toward these individuals. Now, over the course of time, you've seen what happened. You've seen how Muhammad Ali has become a national hero. Why? Because he had the courage of his convictions. And I hope that in this case that Colin Kaepernick and those who have followed him also in time in in the historical uh, rearview mirror will be looked at and vindicated as well. Yeah, here's where I have the problem with Kaepernick. While I respect all the guys, and listen, George, we come from a different place. When I woke up this morning and looked in the mirror, last I noticed, I was this little white guy. <laughs> and when I look at you, I'm looking at this big black guy. And I don't think that's going to change anytime Not soon. Not at all. <laughs> so we come from a different background. Yes. We, we, we've been through certain different things. But see, the Kaepernick thing, while I respect... The players' right to protest. Cap Kaepernick lost my respect, and the reason he lost my respect, he did two things. When he wore a T-shirt of, of Fidel Castro, for lack of a better term, that totally pissed me off. Mm-hmm. Go down to Miami in Little Havana and talk to Cuban people who, whose family's been through that. They're going to tell you what they think of Castro. And the other thing was, and you're a friend of the police. Mm-hmm. When he wore socks depicting police as pigs, he lost me. And and to me, that's I think he would have had more people 
if not on his side, more willing to understand. But I think he he f things up, if you will. I think you're right, Russ, and I agree with you again, 100%. I think therein lies the dividing line. When he crossed over and he made it something uh, that it should not have been. The purity of the original tense should have been in place. But instead, I think he clouded it and he allowed other criticisms to come in, and rightly so. Um, but I will say this, Russ. Let me preface our conversation by saying this. As you say, we've been friends a long time. I have an inordinate amount of respect for you. We can sit down in this um, in, in this atmosphere of tribalism uh, that appears that, you know, to talk uh, current events or social events or politics has become a contact sport and winner take all. And you and I can sit down and we can agree to disagree. Right. Uh, we have our own perspectives. And I think when it's all said and done, we'll stand up and shake hands and say, you know, Russ, I, I understand. I see where you're coming from and I respect that. Not enough of that has taken place in society today, and you have people who've hardened their respective positions, and it's a shame. Yeah, I, I think that is a, you know, it's, sports is a microcosm of society, and, and, you know, that's exactly what a problem is. We see it every day, you, you know, in, in the daily politics that, that goes on throughout this country. It, it's just that, you know, sometimes you gotta put yourself in the shoes of another individual. Uh, it, even though I respect the rights of players to protest, I was wondering, you know, where are they coming from? So I spoke to a lot of African-Americans, uh, both athletes and non-athletes. And I'm not talking about, you know, with long dreads and the pants down. You know, I'm talking about as clean cut as clean cut would be. And I asked them. In fact, I asked it to you. I said, do you ever... Um, have to get out of a car and put your hands on a hood. And almost to a man, they all laughed at me. And and I, I don't think I'm naive. Call me a lot of things. I've never been called naive. But they all kind of laughed and chuckled. Russ, you kidding? Yeah. Like, like kind of matter of fact. And that kind of made me understand a little bit more of where they're coming from. And for a, I'll give you an example. Olivier Vernon with the Giants. His father's a cop for 25 years in Miami. He's got family in the military. He's not anti-police, but he's pissed off about certain things that happen from some police. It's not a Mm -hmm. condemnation of all police. Absolutely. Uh, I got to say this, Russ, um, and we come at this, as you say, from our own perspective and our own experience. And yes, um, living while black is is quite different than living while white. That's a that's an absolute reality that people don't talk enough about. I can't tell you how many times that I've been um, uh, pulled over, you know, for 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 nothing, you know, just pulled over because I happen to be uh, a black guy driving a, a very nice car. Let me interrupt for a second. Not just in the South. Oh, correct? not just in the not in the South at all. As a matter of fact, and it's it's amazing. I've seen uh, officers approach the car with their hand on their revolver. And we were always socially taught among ourselves as African-American, always put your hands at 10 and 2, always show them, because we don't have the luxury of uh, presumption of innocence that our white counterparts have. And uh, uh, I can't tell you how many guys have come up with a predetermined uh, expectation of what I am and what I would be until they look at the driver's license, they ask me who I am, and they find out who I am. Then they're full of apologies, and they couldn't be nicer. And I say to myself, why couldn't they presuppose the positive as opposed to applying the negative to who I was prior to them knowing that. It's something that we have to face 
every single day. And it's not just with police officers. I'll tell you, society, I'll walk into, I, I live just north of here in, in a town that I've been there for 30 years. I've been a staple in the community. And I can walk into a, a supermarket sometimes, and a, a mother may not know me, and immediately she'll call her children to her. Johnny, come over here. Beth, get over here. Come over here. As if, though, I'm going to walk down the aisle and put one of them in the basket and walk out of the store. That happens all the time. You go to the, uh, to the mall. There's always a detective who's going to follow you around and try to be very discreet. But it happens disproportionately to African Americans. Last thing, I, I recently moved out to uh, California. And I was thinking about buying a boat, and I went to a public arena in Sacramento, California. And I walked up to the desk, and the guy had no idea who I was. And I said, I'd like to check in about uh, renting a berth. And he looked at me with an absolute straight face and says, we have no berths here available. I walked out. The, my, my friend, who happened to be white, he didn't know this, walked in and asked him the same question. He gave him a plan of about 30 or 40 berths that were av- available. Now, you know, we deal with this all the time, Russ. Right. Every day you have to deal with things like that where you wouldn't have to deal with such, such discrimination, but it still exists today. And, and I, I believe once I learned that when, when a guy, when a player, you know, I've never had to put my, I've been stopped, but, oh, yeah, hey, it's you, Russ. Go ahead. Get going. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, but when you hear that, it, it kind of is a wake up call. But. Let's be frank about this. Before, initially, there maybe was a handful. I don't think, I, well, if not, certainly you can count them on two hands, the number of players that were initially involved in kneeling or sitting down. Mm-hmm. Once the president called them son of bitches and, and, and you get, get off the field, that opened up, like to me, the, that protest by the players, especially the, the weeks following it, was as much of a bleep you. And this is not, folks, about what side of the fence you're on, whether you're Republican, Democrat, a left, right, liberal, conservative. That was just, it didn't matter who said it, but the players were basically saying bleep you. And that's what the protest has been more about than anything else, in my belief. It began to deteriorate when that uh, statement was made, and it's, and it's quite unfortunate. And I will say this, Russ, uh, as an individual who played um, you know, four years in high school, four years in college, and, and 14 years in the National Football League, and took pride each and every day um, at game time to uh, pledge allegiance to this great nation because I have uh, two prominent flags in my home. One for me walking across the United States of America. Which getting, we will get to, folks. Getting signatures from individuals. But the, the other one is a triangular fa- flag that was given to at the death of my father who served in the military. I have one of those as well. Yes. And and given my, my history and my family history and, and my commitment, no one can tell me that when I exercise my right to protest that I become a son of a bitch all of a sudden because I choose to stand with individuals who are trying to signify some injustice in society. Um, that to me is, is, is so discrediting to the cause and... The reason we have this, this constitutional right, is because we ourselves, as, as the forefathers, were trying to get away from that tyranny that was over in, in, in the oppressive England. So they wanted to make sure that they were building a union that was a more perfect union that had these rights, these God-given rights. So it doesn't matter whether the, the president of the United States or 64 percent, 75 percent or 88 percent of America thinks that it's disrespectful. It's still a God-given uh, an alienable right, and you need to look at that. What that means—that right means that it can't be taken away from us, nor can we give it away. 
but the optic is what it is. It is. And, and I, I believe you and I agree on that point. You, what would you have done differently if you were a player? Okay. And, and okay. We, and you're a leader. You have been a leader. And, and I know, I know, listen, you presented Bill Parcells at the Hall of Fame because you were the leader. What would you have done if if you were in position to get a protest started, knowing what you know, how the optic would be so bad? How would you have done it? Well, first of all, I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Yeah. So I don't want to stand here as the, the, the you know, the, the, the consciousness of, of, of right and wrong. But I will tell you this. I've been through those things on several occasions and a unilateral, um, you know, uh, act is not the best way. My uh Recommendation and my approach would have been to go to the organization first and foremost, to sit down and have a dialogue, start a dialogue and try to remedy things. As you and I talk all the time, Russ, have a discussion, have a dialogue and talk about some of the things that concern me, some of the things that I'm, uh, you know, really moved by. And let's see if we can't be able to bridge a, a collective solution to the problem. That's where I think we went astray because that, that dialogue was never open. So that's what I would have done, and that's what I have done over my 14 years in the NFL, and it's always served me well. Yeah, the thing with Kaepernick with me, and, and you know, I, I do want to move on, and, and people, you have to understand this about George Martin, and we're going to get into that. George is a great friend of the police in this country. Not not just locally, across this country. And he, walk, he walked across the country to prove it. 3,000 miles and 10 months. But, you know, to me, it, it, it's a situation, George, where I, I don't know if it, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. The owners are being accused of collusion for not hiring Kaepernick. Now, you might disagree with this. In fairness to the owners on this... I wouldn't hire Kaepernick, but I wouldn't hire Kaepernick not because of his stance. Kaepernick is not the guy that he, the quarterback that he was who took the San Francisco 49ers to the Super Bowl. Kaepernick skills have eroded and you've been in locker rooms for 14 years. I'm just saying 14 years just with the Giants. I don't want my backup quarterback every time that there is a black-white situation or there's a race situation. I don't want 50 cameras coming in because Colin Kaepernick is my backup quarterback. He's not worth the aggravation. And now, that's my perspective. Is that a fair assessment? I think it's a little bit off from this perspective, uh, Russ, and, and follow me if you will. Uh, and I agree with the assessment. However, the assessment wasn't made um, in its usual uh, case. He was he was not invited back into camp to show his abilities, and therein lies the difference. Had he been invited back, and though you don't just fall off the wagon completely and and not get an opportunity, and I think that's where uh, things kind of went askew. If he had been brought into camp and he could demonstrate his ability to or not be able to perform at that level, you have no argument. You have no argument whatsoever. But to presuppose in advance that he had gone beyond his diminished skills to the point where he could not be a, a starting quarterback or a backup quarterback in the NFL was an assumption on the part of the NFL. And that's where they went wrong. They didn't give him the opportunity to come in and, and demonstrate his wares. I, I guess maybe that's another case of the optics. Absolutely. Because I, I just I'm like, like I say, say if I'm an owner, I don't want this aggravation in my locker room. You know, people lose sight of the fact there are two factors here. They they lose sight of the fact that the bottom line is when you're hired to be on a football team, the job is to win. 
That's the bottom line in that business. And all 32 teams. That that becomes the bottom line. The other bottom line is this. When, when people say, uh, well, you can't, if, if you're in a restaurant or you work for this place or another place, you can't just protest on your own time and instant. And I always go, hold on a second. <laughs> when you are a owner of a professional team and you are a professional athlete working every day in a public eye, you, you're operating under a different set of rules. You are operating in front of the world, in front of public image, and, and in front of public opinion. That's absolutely right. You have to be cognizant of the, um, um, the, the fishbowl, if you will, that you're, uh, that you're operating in. And therefore, your actions should be very measured at all, ta- at all times. Um, and, and that's one thing that I was, again, always cognizant. When you're out in the public eye, you're not, you, your time is not your own. The optics are not your own. You have to be very aware of the fact that you represent not only yourself as a professional, or at least you should, but also an organization whose, um, whose focus is, is much larger than yourself. So when you do have these acts of individualism, you have to realize how they impact and how they affect a larger picture. And, and in this case, uh, you're talking about all of the African Americans that uh, participate in not only football, but in, in sports in, in general. Um, and, and I'd have to say this also, Russ, that, that a lot of people, you got to look at the other side as well. A lot of people feel as if, though, if you're an athlete, you're already privileged. You should be happy and content. Just yeah, to, you I've know, heard that. Yeah. Don't minimize and don't trivialize uh, my rights. You know, that's not up for you to determine. Uh, as an athlete, yes, we do have privileges and we have made stride. That does not relinquish our ability or our right to go beyond that. Yeah, I remember years ago, <laughs> years ago when I was on the radio at WFAN, somebody called me. I, 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 it was maybe it was a, a, a NBA strike, a player strike, a lockout, whatever the hell it was. Somebody said, you know, Russ, I mean, these guys don't get it. You know, I work for nothing. I, I mean, you know how many people would do for nothing? So I said, like, so what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a salesman. I, I just, what, what kind of salesman? I, I, I think it was chemicals or something. Right. I says, I'll tell you what you do. Uh, go tell your boss you don't want to get paid for the next two, three weeks. Mm-hmm. What's that mean? Well, you say you're willing to work for nothing. Yeah, right. Well, what's that mean? <laughs> no, oh, it's good for you, ain't good for them. I right. mean, you know, I mean, it's okay. Um, what before we move on? Mm-hmm. What do you think about the the the, the um, NFL's edict or whatever you want to call it that a player has he has the right now if he wants to stay in the locker room uh, while the anthem is being played or or to come out or there might be fines or what? What do you think of that and how it came about? I think it's uh, akin to kissing your sister. It uh, to me was uh, was wrong. It was wrong headed. It was um, uh, almost mean spirited. It was unilaterally uh, implemented as opposed to bilaterally with the NFL Players Association, which we should you know talk about their involvement or more importantly their non involvement. And I think that whenever you implement something like that, you have to have buy-in from either the opposition, in this case, labor and management, or their representatives being the NFL Players Association. That did not happen. And I think in in hindsight, it backfired because you can see that whereas the White House uh, soundly rejected it and said you shouldn't give them the option to stay into the uh, locker room. That's still a, a protest and disrespectful, which I, I, I wholeheartedly disagree. So I think that it was uh, it, it was implemented incorrectly because it didn't have buy in from the opposition. And I think that it was um, uh, 
at least uh, ineffectual, and we'll we'll see uh, this coming season because it, uh, to me it still doesn't address the core issue. They're still off looking at this uh, this um, this made up scenario, which I it, it, it bothers me tremendously. When you see an injustice that's taking place, and here it is, we're having this this long drawn out discussion about something that is not totally relevant to the initial. Issue. I'm not saying that that patriotism is is is, is unimportant. Rush, you know me better than. That. But I'm saying that when you look at the 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 scenario which this all started, nobody has stepped to the forefront and say, "Okay, let's talk about that." Nobody's done that. Well, okay, you mentioned the players' association. I, I full disclosure here, folks. I am not a fan of Demar Smith, the head of the players' association. I think there's a tremendous lack of leadership there. And, and quite frankly, you, you know, instead of reading the odd um, release, I mean, you should be front and center with these guys talking about it and, and maybe have that meeting, as I said, maybe Absolutely. have this big summit. We haven't heard nothing uh, not not any kind of leadership not any sort of direction and and they should be i think the the focal point for the players in their protests and then uh make a request to the to the NFL to say let's sit down we talk about everything else we talk about benefits we talk about days off we talk about rules and regulations let's talk about this let's be, see if we can come up with a collective solution number 1 russ that would give the players in protest Hey, you know what? We've got a seat at the table. At least something is progressing. We have an opportunity to air our grievances or our differences uh, with management. That in and of itself is a step in the right direction. But when your pleas are falling on deaf ears, that's a recipe for disaster. And, uh, you know, that disaster has certainly occupied the consciousness of this country, you know, certainly for the past year. But let, let's move on. The date was September 16th, 2007. You left. Uh, walk across the GW and, uh, you were gone for 10 months. You returned June 21st, 2008. How much money did you raise? Uh, we raised a total of three million as far as uh, cash donations, and that was um, matched by the three hospitals that participated with us. So it was six million dollars that went directly to the to the first responders for their uh, their medical now, treatment. Now, when you decided to walk across America, like how did you come up with that idea? Yo, know, Russ, uh, here we go about patriotism. Um, I am a beneficiary of the the wonderfulness that is the United States of America. And I had the great privilege of, of being sought as a hero, someone who, you know, played a kid's game at a professional level for 14 years here in New York. Uh, I have uh, received all the adulations that you could possibly imagine. So when this travesty, the attack on the world trade, happened in our backyard, I had a strong sense of obligation that something needed to be done and as the problem progressed and those people who were exposed uh, were not getting the medical treatment uh, that they needed, and they were they were real heroes. You know, you don't you don't be, be a hero just because you put on a uniform and play, you know, one out of seven days a week. So I felt compelled to do something to help them. And I didn't want to do another chicken dinner. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Another golf outing, please. Not for me. I don't even play golf. So I wanted to do something that was uh, historic and something that was more meaningful and had more of a, uh, an impact. And the one thing that was on my bucket list, being born in the South and having these wonderful, um, uh, you know, permutations about what the, the United States was really all about, I always had this wanderlust to walk across America. And this gave me the opportunity and to affix the best cause I thought at the time, a journey for 911. It was perfect. 
Now, and how many miles do you walk a day? We had a, an objective of a minimum of 20 miles per day. And throughout the nine and a half months, we met that objective every day except one. And our best day was 30.2 miles, and I'm very proud of that. How, how many pair of sneakers did you go through? I went through personally 27 pair of sneakers right. and uh, lost 40 pounds in the process. Well, that's uh, a good thing. That's a good thing. That was a good thing. <laughs> how much did you put on? <laughs> <laughs> I put 40 miles on it. But no, you lost 40 pounds, lost 40 on, pounds. On, on the trip. And that was also a fundraiser because for every pound that I lost, I think that they'd committed $200 per pound for every pound that I lost to the charity as well. How, how about... You know, you're walking across America. This big black man is walking across America. How did the people receive you? Russ, here's a point of true confession. Uh, being a, a son of the South, I knew that at some point in time, as you say, having this big black man in these leotards and this, you know, <laughs> you know looking like Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> walking not exactly Barishnikov. Not exactly Barishnikov <laughs> at all. Uh, I was fearful in my heart of hearts that at some point in time, uh, the underbelly of America would rear its ugly head and present itself. Out of the hundred and almost ninety walking days, not one not one iota of an incident, Russ. As a matter of fact, we walked through the heart of Klan country in Tennessee. And one day, uh, um, a trooper came up to us and he says, "What are you guys doing out here?" He saw the bus and he saw the insignia and, and, and us. He said, "We're raising money for nine eleven." He says, "Really?" He says, "Huh? I haven't gotten any phone calls yet." We said phone calls. He says, yeah, he says, I should have gotten a phone call by now. You guys sure you're okay? So yeah, we're doing fine. So, really? so he was expecting something because, you know, we were in that position. So a car pulls up behind us because we always had an entourage, a uh, five-person walking team with me doing all the walking. Uh, and this pickup truck pulls up. It's, it's camouflage pickup truck with the ubiquitous gun rack in the back <laughs> window. And, Russ, I'm six foot five. I'm 200 at that time, 65 pounds. And out steps a guy who had to be six foot seven and a biscuit away from 300 pounds. <laughs> a bearded gentleman who had overalls on and he had a hat that he'd been wearing since birth. I'm, I'm telling you, this guy was your typical look a redneck, right? So he gets out of the truck and he starts walking toward us. And I say to my security, hey, guys, be alert here. I don't know what this is. So I walk up to the guy and I said, let me defuse the situation. So I stick my hand out and say, hi, I'm George Martin. Knocks my hand away. And he walks toward me, and he picks me up off the ground. He says, I don't want a handshake. I want a hug. He said, I've heard about you guys. He says, you got to come to my restaurant. Russ, here's a guy who I could not have less in common with. Right. For the next three days, we ate at his restaurant, and we were like blood brothers. And it's a relationship that lives to this day. It was phenomenal. Wow. That happened repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. I, I know that there was one story, uh, you know, doing my homework on this. I read this years ago. Yeah. But I, I refreshed myself the other night. A woman came up with her grandchildren yes. or something. Yes. We would get uh, pulled over all the time by by fans who wanted autographs or, you know, pictures and stuff, and we were always accommodating. So this one day, um, a, a, a van pulls up in front of us. And um, uh, a, a, a grandmother type gets out of the car, and she's got these four children with her, little small kids. So I say to the guys, hey, guys, bring up some pictures, and I'll autograph it for these uh, fans. So she walks up to me, and she sticks out her hand, and she says, Mr. Martin, she says, I, she starts, she's apologetic. She says, I'm so sorry to stop you. I know you're on your mission. I said, oh, no, not a problem. I'll be glad to sign autographs for your kids. She says, oh, no, no. She says, I, they don't want autographs. I didn't bring them out here for this. She says, these are my grandkids. 
And I brought them out because I wanted them to see current events and I wanted them to meet a hero. Could have knocked me over with a feather. That was the, that to me that was the highlight of the journey. I could see the look in your yeah, face. It, was, it, it, it makes... just absolutely blew me away, Russ. And here, here I am. Was, thinking, she, was she white? She was white. She white yes. White. Yeah. And that, that's what made it so, it's so special. profound. Yeah, absolutely. Cause she was bringing her, her, her four grandkids out to see a hero, irrespective of color or position. It was the mission, what it was about that she wanted them to know about. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget it. Yeah. You, you know, Bad stuff sells. <laughs> makes for good headlines. Yeah. Makes for interesting chatter on on podcasts, on TV. I've been in the news business a long time, but a lot of these stories, these warm and fuzzy stories, they get pushed aside, and maybe they shouldn't get pushed aside because it, it tells you. While we we talk about what's wrong with the country and the divide, and there is a divide, big divide. Mm-hmm. But there's still good in this country. A lot, a lot of good. That was my conclusion, uh, that there's more in this country that binds us together than separates us. And by the way, all of those stories and many more are in my book because I wrote a book about it, Russ. It's called, um, a, um, a journey for 911, um, just around the bend, George Martin. And, uh, all, I felt that those things had to be memorialized. I didn't want them lost to history because they were so pertinent and they were so important. Talk to me, George, now about because, uh, again, folks, when when you're hearing George Martin talk, this is a guy, you know, some people talk, you know, like Tom Coughlin would, would say, talk is cheap, play the game. Well, George plays the game. You know, talk, talk is, is cheap to George. And, uh, you know, while you might disagree with some of the things he says, he is a friend of the police. So much so, you've been involved with uh, MAN, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Minority Athletes Network. Why don't you explain to the people, because you're better of doing it than I am, what exactly that is and where we're going now with it. New Yorkers will recall this vividly, uh, the Central Park jogger case uh, some 30-plus years ago. Um, we were newly retired as, as uh, athletes at that time, and when we heard about the Central Park jogger, we were compelled to say, this is a travesty. We have to do more in our African-American, our inner-city communities to make a difference, we as former professional athletes. So myself, Harry Carson, uh, Terry Jackson, Ron Johnson, we we all got together and we had um, a dinner at a little cafe out in Jersey, and we said we need to formulate a, a group um, that will go in and serve as a positive example and also provide for these kids op- opportunities, scholarships, mentoring programs. And so uh, Ron Johnson came up with the name Minority Athletes Networking, acronym is MAN, and we've been doing it for some better part of 30 years. And Countless millions raised and countless people who've been given scholarships, jobs, training, uh, holiday gifts. Well, I think that it had come to its end because I was a, a co-founder and the executive director. And um, I decided to put it on the shelf because it had been a long, arduous uh, journey. Ed Mullins, who is the head of the uh, Sergeant, Sergeant's, Sergeant's, Sergeant's Benevolent, Benevolent Association. Association in New York, folks, who has been a longtime supporter of both George Martin and Minority Athletes Networking, who was on my board of A Journey for 911, he came up with the brilliant idea that not only does he want to continue the mission of man, but he wants to expand it to be inclusive of police officers. 
And what we are going to do is we're going to band together where we can have a positive impact on communities and do the same things that we did under the man umbrella, but now it's going to be done under the sergeant's benevolent umbrella. We had a meeting earlier this morning, and we're looking for a launch that's going to be uh, late in the uh, spring um, uh, uh, or early or uh, late in the summer, um, and we're going to launch it with the uh, the collective uh, uh, support of not only all of the supporters, uh, corporate supporters that we had in the past, but also the former professional athletes, law enforcement in order to impact the community. I'm so excited, Russ, and thank you for allowing me to, to talk about it. No, I mean, it, 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 but you see, that needs to be said because everybody thinks there's the divide between black athletes or ex-former black athletes and the police. And that's, there are disagreements, but there are also discussions. And, and you and Ed Mullins, because I've spoken to Ed, Ed's a great guy. Ed is a guy who I know that uh, I would lay my life on the line for right. Ed only because I know that he would lay his life on the line for me. That's how close we are. Moving on. I want to ask you about this because you're a former player and you're also sharp as a tack. Some guys are not. CTE. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, this whole thing with, with concussions yeah. and, and residual effects and how it affects. What's your viewpoint on that, your stance? Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, it is an absolute real scourge that has impacted um, the National Football League specifically, professional sports in general. And, Russ, I'll I'll preface my comments by saying this, that I've buried more than um, a few friends as a result of that. Um, It is something that I've seen slowly affect and, and, and have a just a devastating effect on a a former player's life and his family. And uh, I am saddened to say that I've gone to more than my share of uh, funerals and did uh, a lot of eulogies as a result of it. At the same time, being extremely cognizant of my own particular situation, is there at some point in time when I'm going to start seeing those diminishing returns and to make sure that my family is taken care of as a result of that? Um, I applaud the NFL for, although having their arm twisted a bit to setting aside a billion dollars in order to address this. I think that it's an absolute disgrace, the fact that not much of that money has been awarded as of yet. And you have to jump through some significant hoops before you are even deemed appropriate to receive it. I myself have gone through those, uh, those steps, those hurdles. And I can tell you this, that it needs to be improved dramatically. So what do you think? Is it a red tape problem? I think that it's all a red tape problem, and I think there is a bureaucracy that uh, does not lend itself to um, what it's supposed to do, and that is help the individual either who has just been uh, affected by it, will be affected by it, or who has been deceased by it. The awards have been trickling out, um, and, and, and that's something that I'm, I'm very discouraged about. Um, and I think the process does not lend itself to being compassionate. There's this pool of money out there that a lot of widows, who've already lost a very good friend of mine who was responsible for me making it into the National Football League. His name is Tom Graham. He passed away over a year ago. Um, diagnosed definitively, CTE was a tr- contributing cause. His, who did he play for? He played for the Denver Broncos and the San Diego okay. Chargers. Middle linebacker. Um, he was like a brother to me. And ha- had it not been for him, I don't know if I would have made it as a professional athlete. Anyway, he passed away better than a year ago. His widow has been fighting for this constantly ever since and to date no award that's that's a travesty yeah i i i it's cte is certainly a very real problem 
But I want to pose something to you, and and I think I, I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. While I certainly do believe that CTE is very real and and very realistic, it, it, the problems are realistic. I think added to the problem, and I'm not a doctor here, like but the Junior Seals and the Mike Websters and people like that. I think part of the problem with certain athletes, while CTE is a problem, and you're shaking your head, I think you know where I'm going with this. A lot of athletes don't know what to do when the cheering stops. And and they're, they're raised from knee-eye to a grasshopper. They're, this has been, like you said, you played four years uh, in high school, four years in college, 14 years in the pros. You're also, you know what? You're a smart cookie. You got your head on your shoulders. A lot of guys don't know what to do, not just in football. Mm-hmm. I've seen it in all sports. What do I do when the cheering stops? They don't know what to do because the, the whole definition of, of being is the adulation that they got from the fans. And to me, I'm, again, I'm not trying to say, nah, they didn't suffer from CTE, but that doesn't help the situation. Russ, one of the things that I'm absolutely proudest of is the fact that I um – started the very first formal degree completion program for the New York Football Giants. The reason I'm so f- so um, fond of that is that in the first year that I that I started this as a team captain, I went back to my team and I addressed it and said that at that point in time, better than 75% of the guys who were coming into the league didn't have their college degrees. Um, and I wanted to uh, impact that. So I went to Fairleigh Dickinson University and I asked them if there was a program that we could participate in that could help guys complete their degrees. They said yes. I went back and held a, a team meeting and the first year we had the program, there were 17 players that signed up, one coach and one spouse. That was my wife, Diane. That program, I am so proud to say, has now been replicated in all 32 NFL teams. Wow. Why? For the same reasons that you just pointed out. You know, guys did not have what they what we call career transition plans. You know, and I've seen some outstanding household names, you know, be tossed aside like yesterday's newspaper because they didn't make that preparation for life after. So, yes, there is a a, a part of that problem rest on the shoulders of the players themselves. Yeah. And in fairness, you know, again, players come into the league and, you know, you you played for. One of the greatest organizations, not just in football, yes. in all the sports. Absolutely. That, that, it's no, for lack of a better term, it's no bullshit. Mm. Once you're a giant, you're always, always a giant. A giant. And, and, and you got to do something really bad wrong to be discarded. It, it doesn't work that way. But sometimes it, it's, it's put on the shoulders. You know, a, a, a player goes through all his money and, and then he's broke and the family's looking and then they're saying, well, you didn't take care of him. Hold on a second. You know, it's not always the responsibility of the team to take care of the player. The player has got to take care of the player. And that includes the family as well. Russ, you're talking to a guy who uh, knows this from experience because uh, part of my uh, my post-career opportunity was as the sports uh, director for the, uh, uh, the, the money, Mutual of New York. Um, uh, and, and one of the challenges that we had was trying to get guys to focus on the fact that, you know, you have this very small window of earning and you have to maximize it, uh, and you can't afford to be lackluster with your, um, with your, with your earnings. You know, they call it professional football. It's not amateur football. So you should be a professional across the board. Um, and I hate to say it, but, uh, we lost more battles than we won because guys felt that, 
this would last forever. And unfortunately, it doesn't. And if you don't make preparation for that life after, it's going to be a rude awakening at some point in time. Well, listening to you talk, it I, I, I've said this to you before, uh, and it's the first time I'm saying it on the air. I, I never forget sitting with Bill Parcells and listen, Bill coached a lot of great players, a lot of great players. Indeed. And both with the Giants and after the Giants. But you were the guy that he chose to present him for the Hall of Fame. And I remember asking him about George Martin, and his answer to me was, I, I'll tell you what, we were sitting, remember M- Manny's and Monarchy? Oh, Manny's, of course. Yeah, okay, <laughs> we were sitting there. This was this was after he left. Mm-hmm. You know, Ray Hanley, uh, w- w- it was his first year as a coach. We were sitting having lunch, and I asked him about you, and he, he said, I could not have done it without George. He go, And he said this, especially with the black players. George allowed me, having George there allowed me to do and say things that I couldn't say and do otherwise. Explain that, if you will, where, where he was coming from. Uh, Bill, first of all, I have such a deep respect for him, and uh, I consider him closer than a, than, than a father because he taught me about life. It wasn't just about the X's and O's. Uh, but he, um, I wish I had time to tell you this, this story because he, he made me realize how important it was for leadership to come from the players, not just the head coach. Um, and, um, one day he called me out on it because there was a young guy who was jumping off sides and he called everybody up and we always thought he was going to give this guy what for. He pulled me to the center and said, George, if this guy jumps off sides again, I'm holding you personally responsible. He let them know that there are no sacred cows and that everybody is under the same umbrella. And that I, he pulled me aside and said, you have more to gain or lose than any of them because you're the senior member on the team, a lesson I will never forget. So, yes, that's what it meant when everybody has the responsibility to row that boat. He might be sitting up in the, you know, up in the front um, cheering everybody on, but we as people who are captains, people who have that responsibility, we have to do as much corrective activity as the head coach does, and I will never forget that. Yeah, but there's also, I, I've always said this, leadership, you know, you can teach it, but leadership has to come from within, doesn't it, George? I mean, to me, talking to you, knowing you, it comes from your insides. Yeah, Bill Parcells might have pointed you and showed you some things, but he also had to know that it's there. I just yeah. got to pull it out. I agree with you, Russ. I think to some degree it's inherent. But even so, you still need those individuals who are going to serve as mentors and, and, and people who are going to, to 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 just correct it a little bit. Those people are vitally important. And thank God I had the Bill Parcells in my life to say, hey, George, you know, you might want to consider this. The one thing he told me, Russ, he says, it's better to be respected than to be liked. Because he knew I had that propensity. I wanted people to like George Martin. I wanted the people to, right. to. He says, you know what, George? If they respect you, that's that's the best that you can ask for. That's the best of both worlds if people respect you. Yeah, I, I think. And, and listen, not everybody loved Bill. But, <laughs> but No, but everybody True. respected him. Absolutely. That, that, yeah. That's probably, that describes him to a T. You know, I saw what he put into, uh, and every time I look at this ring on my finger, you know, Russ, this is this reminds me of Bill Parcells because I know what he sacrificed. You know, he lost his parents, both parents, and and uh, I think inside of a week or two weeks, something like that. Yeah, I remember that. And he stayed on the job. I mean, that's I I, I will never forget that. I, and I, I looked, I said, how can anyone? I'd be, you know, I'd be beside De- myself, devastated. Yeah, I'd be devastated. And not to say that he wasn't, 
But he had a priority. He had a responsibility to us, and he didn't shirk that responsibility. A hell of a man. A hell of a man. Without question. I'll tell you what that man also said. He said that there was this play in the 12th (laughs) game of the Super Bowl when the Giants won their first Super Bowl in 86 against the Denver Broncos and a young um, John Elway. And I'll tell you what. Just because I knew we were talking today, I went last night on YouTube and looked it up. Lord have mercy. I, I got to tell you, I didn't know. I, that wasn't George Martin running there. To me, that was Gail Sayers running. I, I, George, he said, folks, George intercepted Elway around the 20 and took it something like 80 yards. But it wasn't. He didn't just take it like and go off and running. It, this was when Bill said it's one of the greatest plays he's ever seen. And I have to uh, agree with that. I mean. First of all, you, you got then you got like an entourage right. and LTs there, and you're doing a little shake and bake and book. It was amazing. Well, you know what? I, I try not to get too uh, impressed with that statement because it's not about George Martin. What he meant in totality when he said that was the greatest play uh, that he'd ever seen was the fact that it was a collective endeavor. I couldn't have made it without you know all of those great blocks. I couldn't have made it without you know Lawrence running some interference, and I could not made it make it without at the very end the last block uh, of uh, the running back um it was just a perfectly team executed play and i that's the, if i had to pick one play russ you you got it that would be it oh l- let me tell you hey folks we're talking about there is nobody in the history of the national football league no defensive lineman that has m- more career touchdowns than one George Martin. Am I right? Six of them. Yeah, there actually it's, there's a seven, but you did that as a right. seven. I did my homework, <laughs> you brother. Did do your homework. As I'm a impressed. tight end. I am okay. impressed. Okay. I am impressed. I am impressed. But, but six as a defensive lineman. That, that's correct. Um, uh, I think Jason Taylor uh, was credited with seven. So I, okay. to be honest, I think Jason Taylor has broken. In fact, when he did break it, I sent him a, um, uh, a congratulatory letter and I said, congratulations. Although, if people were to ask me, George Martin, as an individual, how many touchdowns did you score in the National Football League? We'd have to say the same, which is seven. Right, right, right. <laughs> in terms of big plays, listen, you, the culmination, you know, for, for your situation, I know you, you left, 88 was your last year. That's correct. Mm-hmm. But but when, when you won that Super Bowl, that safety that you put on uh, uh, on Elway, that had to be, you know, arguably one of the biggest plays of your career? The only safety I've ever scored. By the way, really, that was it, the one and only. And uh, you know, it's interesting because I had Eric Howard next to me, who was a young defensive sure. lineman at the time. And I told him before we broke the huddle, I said, "Eric, no matter what I say to you, disregard it." <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, you you got to really you know, lay it out. So we break the huddle, we come out, and I say, "Eric, me game," which means that we're going to crisscross. Right. I said, "Eric, me game." Did you hear me? Me game. Meanwhile, the offensive lineman is listening. Said, "Well, he's a stupid rookie. They're going to run a me game." And when the ball snapped, I faked like I was coming inside with the me game, came right around, and Elway ran right into my arms. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'll tell you something. Drafted out of Oregon, 1975, uh, 11th round, 11th I believe round. it was. 262nd pick overall. They don't even have them anymore. They don't. That's right. The 262nd pick overall. Missed only six games. In an entire, in a 14-year career other than uh, the strike year, yes. I guess it was. I mean, when you look back, my friend, uh, it's, I know I'm proud of you. Well, 
Thank but you, you got to be pr- proud of yourself when you look in the mirror and, and realize what you've accomplished. And, and, and not just what you've accomplished, but the respect that people have for what you accomplished. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, Russ. Uh, blessed by God. And I mean that with all sincerity. Um, a man of faith uh, for all of those years. My, I, I was fortunate to grow up in a household that uh, religious and, and um, the value of Christianity was important. And to go out and practice it. Um, I have been very, very fortunate, as I said, to, to live in this great country and to benefit from some of the, the gains that, um, you know, some of my forebearers have uh, allowed me to accomplish. And I've got four wonderful children who I'm glad to pass that that uh, that genealogy and, and, and off to. And uh, it's it's been a very good run. And, and it's all happened right here in the Big Apple. And I'm appreciative of it. Let me ask you one question, because you mentioned the four, uh, four children. Mm-hmm. There's, there's six uh, grandchildren. Yes, how, how many boys? Uh, three boys, three girls. Okay, so three and three. Uh, we were talking br- briefly about CTE. Mm-hmm. Would you want your grandchildren to play football? Uh, I'll give you the answer that I generally give. Uh, I would neither encourage nor discourage them from pursuing their own goals in life. The only caveat is I would make sure that they are completely educated as to the cause and effect of their decisions and make sure that they were informed as to what it would constitute. George Martin, number 75. George, I can't thank you enough, my friend. It's uh, been a pleasure having you here. I know you're going to be living out in California, but you got to agree to when you're in town, we want you in again. I come back often, Russ, and thank you for the opportunity. It's been a, a real joy. All right. I thank you, George. It's been more than a joy for me. It's, it's been an absolute uh, respect and, and, and a great pleasure. Anyway, folks, that's a wrap on today. You've had uh, just about an hour with me and the great George Martin. I want to thank you all for getting a load of this. And now I like uh, to hear from you. I like to get a load of you and hear what you say. So let me know your thoughts on our discussion today. You can let me know at at Russ Salzberg or on Facebook. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll um, next week, you know, let you know some of the comments that you made and pick out the best ones. My, my thanks right now to my producer today, Nick Morgison, uh, Craig Schwab, 77 WABC program director, uh, the OG Podcast Network, of course. And as always, i got to thank you, the fans, because without you people, I'd have nobody here to talk to. So until next time on Get a Load of This, it's Russ Salzberg saying bye-bye, so long, and farewell. room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.